Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Straight Talk Radio, where we discuss business, politics, and culture. I'm your host, Donia Keating, live from the Seattle area at 3 p.m. Pacific Time on August 28th. Listeners, if you're out there and you want to have some on-air participation today, just dial 646-378-0261. And if you want to talk, make sure you push 1 on your keypad so we know you want to speak out there. And there's also a chat feature, so you can toss your questions and comments there, and we'll try to incorporate them into the show. Today we're going to discuss uh, cybersecurity and privacy and keeping a step ahead of hackers. We're chatting with Brian Morgert, and uh, he's the founder and president of Audit West, which provides IT risk and compliant, uh, compliance advisory services. So uh, we're going to ask him a couple of questions and uh, take it from there. So good afternoon, Brian. How are you today? He's out there somewhere. You there, Brian? Yeah, hi, Donia. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm glad you're joining us today. So let's just move right on into it and give us a, a brief background about yourself. Tell us about yourself. Um, I've been in the uh, IT and information security industry for, oh gosh, more than over 25 years now and uh, leading uh, information security consulting teams uh, for the past 15 uh I started Audit West in 2010, and prior to that, I was president of Trust CC for roughly eight years. Uh, I worked uh, worked for all sizes of companies, uh, from multinational Fortune 500 firms to small single location businesses. Uh, I've also worked in multiple vertical markets, including public sector, finance, healthcare, higher education, etc. I, I do a lot with uh, regulatory compliance, uh, IT, IT audit, penetration testing, and uh, and digital forensics. Oh, <clears throat> that's a very interesting term. You know, and we'll get some more get some more information on that as we start talking some more about what you do. And you know, you brought up Audit West, so give us some more background on that. What type of clients do you typically serve, and what made you even start this type of a business? Um, you know, every business uh, has a need for information security, whether they whether they know it or not. I mean, we just uh, just on the news today, even uh, Dairy Queen was the latest victim uh, to this uh, back off point of sale malware. Um, so, whether it's uh, regulatory compliance or a need to protect digital assets, maintain productivity, increase awareness, or respond to a security incident uh, like a data breach. Uh, Every organization has unique needs when it comes to security. Uh, there's no one-size-fits-all solution, and uh, security requires the right combination of people, processes, and technology. Uh, we serve those needs and provide both technical expertise as well as executive-level uh, insight into security and risk management. So, you know, it's a nutshell. And, and you know, you just did you just say Dairy Queen? Dairy Queen. Okay, yeah, right. that's very interesting. I, I have, it's, it's always, it seems like it's, why does it always seem like it's the brick and mortar type companies that are getting hit by uh, this, these types of things more than internet companies? Why is that? 
Well, there's uh, the, the main reason is the level of risk to uh, to the hackers. Um, when when they attack an online uh, uh, site, uh, uh, commerce site, they're primarily going to get uh, usernames and passwords and access to uh, you know yours and my accounts. Like let's take Amazon as an example. Not that they've been breached or anything, but you know just about everybody in the known universe has an Amazon account. And, you know, a lot of people store their credit cards in there, and when, once you log in, you can basically use your mouse to order something. The problem from a hacker perspective is that when you order something, it has to be delivered, and that delivery takes, you know, uh, from three to ten days sometimes, and that provides an opportunity uh, for the hackers to get caught before they receive their goods. With uh, brick-and-mortar companies, they're actually attacking the point-of-sale system and capturing the credit cards, the credit card numbers, and creating fraudulent credit cards and using them in some... There was one case that I investigated that uh, the cards were uh, compromised. Uh, the cards were used by the, um, by the actual owner of the cards, and two hours later they were used uh, for a fraudulent transaction clear across the country. So the risk level is relatively low because they can have take those credit cards, walk right into uh, Best Buy, buy a brand new 80-inch plasma TV, and walk out of it. And so there's very little opportunity to get uh, investigated or, or caught uh, by authorities. You know, and it's something that I notice about, you know, situations that we've endured in the past is that, you know, when you're dealing with your credit card company, it's not like they call you and say, you know, X person out in Texas took your number and bought some so-and-so. I mean, what they basically do is call you and let you know that there was a breach, and then they give you a new number. So, you know, you raise a really good right. point about how it's so easy to get in there and for them to go and buy something at Best Buy, and then they're done. And, and so when you have credit card companies on the other end that really aren't doing that much, I mean, they, they basically just do something to protect you and then they move on. It's not until they have a major breach like the ones that we see in the news until, you know, they finally decide to act. And, you know, we were preparing for this show, you know, speaking of which, and and came across your blog about five key steps to data breach response. So can you walk us through that? Sure. Yeah, no problem. Um, So first of all, first and foremost, and this isn't really a step, but first and foremost, having a plan in place is absolutely paramount to uh, minimizing losses uh, within data breach. Without a plan, you're just winging it and uh, putting yourself and your business at a much higher risk of significant financial and reputational impact. Um, So that being said, uh, you know, the first thing to do if you suspect, even, even suspect a breach that has occurred, or, or any security incident, um, is activate your incident response team. If you don't have an incident response team or plan, build one. Um, and it's important, it's also, it's equally as important to test that on a regular basis. Um, we, we perform tabletop tests for uh, clients where we create an exercise and, and just basically walk them through their response procedures. Um, mm-hmm. Some of the primary responsibilities of the incident response teams are to manage and coordinate response effort, uh, act as an intermediary between CXOs and, uh, and other team members, uh, you know, identify key tasks, manage timelines and document response efforts, uh, identify any budget and other resources that are necessary, um, identify steps to assess the scope of the breach, uh, another step. So, having a team in place is, is hugely report important. Um, also, uh, kind of underneath that, if you don't have the expertise on staff, is 
is as a forensic consultant on Paul because the forensic investigations and knowing how to properly collect and process evidence, uh, even from the initial stages of a breach investigation, is absolutely critical. If you, uh, for example, if you suspect a breach on a on a workstation and you just go in and turn the power off. You've already destroyed evidence in that in that you have erased the physical memory on there. There's uh, most malware these days operates pretty much only in memory, and uh, that's why it's uh, not getting detected by antivirus software. So uh, mm-hmm. it, it's critical to have a, a forensics person on call. Um, second of all, the second uh, key step is to document everything, every step you take when you. When you're responding to these incidents, uh, from you know the initial phone call to any actions uh, that were taken uh, during the investigation and prior to any law enforcement or any, anybody else coming in and, and helping you out, uh, this helps create a timeline for investigation. Um, uh, so, anyways, uh, it, it, documentation is absolutely critical. Mm-hmm. Um, Third step, uh, secure the premises if you can. Uh, that will help preserve evidence. Uh, if you can't control access, both physical and logical, to the area of the breach, if it's a network breach, try to control access to, to that network environment. That will help minimize uh, any uh, pivoting through your network and uh, aid in the investigation. Um, you, you, you know, along with that, you can also, if you, if you know which machines are affected, uh, if it's down to that level, um, you can take those offline, but don't turn them off or, or start probing the system as, until you have a qualified forensic investigation team uh, either on the phone or on site that can assist you. Uh, when you start probing systems, uh, you are going to destroy evidence. I've walked into numerous investigations where they had an IT company come in, and they're running antivirus software and cleaning stuff out. All that, it, all those things destroy evidence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so fourth, uh, work with your service providers. They can be a valuable asset, whether it's your bank, your card processor, or a managed security service provider. They, uh, they have uh, resources that can help you identify and re- identify the threat and respond appropriately. Um, if you're subject to PCI compliance, Client standards. Uh, you want to notify them that you're investigating a possible breach. They'd, they'll likely have uh, additional requirements that you'll need to comply with as part of your credit card processing agreement. All right. And finally, and if it comes to this, uh, you, you may ha- you may have to notify uh, any affected customers. Um, in some cases, it may not be necessary. Uh, for example, if the, if the compromised data was encrypted at rest. Uh, you you may or may not have uh, a requirement to notify your customers. The best thing to do is to consult with uh, a legal counsel on that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Finally, because there are some uh, stuff there. Yeah. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, finally, there's uh, many insurance companies now are offering uh, data breach protection policies. Uh, if you store or process uh, large amounts of sensitive customer, customer information or you process credit cards, um, it, it may be worthwhile to investigate uh, having an insurance policy to cover the cost of a breach investigation. Um, 
these, these breach investigations can run um, and typically do, especially for a major retail operation, in excess of half a million dollars and up from there. Many of the big investigative, investigative firms don't even get involved um, unless, uh, unless it's at least a quarter million dollars. You know, there were some, uh, I, I attended a few um, conferences and seminars years ago when the Homeland Security Act first came out, and they were talking to particularly a lot of IT people about their responsibility that they could um, have to information that gets out there or compromises a client. And so, you know, you, you raise a very valid point about going out and getting insurance and protection. But, you know, I heard a story years ago from a consultant who'd been hired by a client to penetrate the company's security, and everything checked out until an unsecured dial-in number on a fax machine was located in breach, and that became the entry point. Now, is that something that would even happen in today's technologically advanced world, an unchecked fax machine? Um, it, you know, it depends on if it's, uh, if it's a network-attached uh, fax machine. I mean, uh, you know, given the creativity of these guys, I wouldn't rule anything out. I mean, you know, right now the main... And there, there's two main entry points into uh, networks that are causing these breaches. Uh, the first one is uh, just users. Uh, users are the weakest link in the security chain, but they're also your first line of defense. Um, I can't emphasize the, the, the value of security awareness training with your user population. Um, you know, targeted phishing attacks are, are very effective in gaining access to a network. And just uh, just a little footholds on a single workstation can open up your entire network. Um, <coughs> excuse me. The other, uh, the other avenue, as we saw in the Target breach, is through third-party vendors who have access. Target was breached because their third-party HVAC provider um, had access to their network, and the hackers actually got into their HVAC provider first and then uh, were warmed their way into the Target environment. Yeah. You know, I use, I know a, a snarky uh, CISO that was fond of saying, "There's no firewall for stupid." So uh, <laughs> I think obviously I, I know it. <laughs> I'm sure you do. Um, so but I saw one of your videos. Um, we were preparing for the show, and we were trying to think about, you know, what can we talk to Brian about? And you spoke of preferring a more proactive and preventative approach than to come into a client facility after something bad has already happened. And it sounds to me like it's, it's almost like what we're doing now with the health profession, with all the technology and information where we're saying, you know, let's prevent. Let's not just react. So, so what would you say in response to that? Well, there's, you know, it's been said several times, or I've seen this quote many times, but it goes, the quote is, there are two types of companies, those that have been breached and know it, and those that have been breached and don't know it. Um, right. A recent analysis of this uh, packed-off point-of-sale malware suggests that there are over a 1,000 networks that have been compromised by this strain alone. Um as I stated, I personally investigated a breach with that malware uh, back in November, and uh, it, it's extremely difficult to, to detect because it runs only in memory. Um, right. So, uh, I mean, things you can do to be proactive in, the, in that we suggest is, uh, you know, again, have an incident response plan tested regularly. Um, you know, reduce your attack service. 
uh, you know, only allow services necessary in and out of your network and disable any services on your critical servers that aren't necessary. For example, I mean, if you have a, a system that's running in a, a SQL database, for example, that has your customer information in it, there's no real reason unless you have some other application running on that to be running Java or uh, running it as a web server. You know, minimize that attack service surface. Um, you know, also you want to encrypt sensitive data. You know, if, if your data is encrypted, that's going to reduce your legal requirements and do a breach notification. In, in many cases, uh, Washington state law is one of the states that uh, doesn't that does not require a breach notification if uh, if the data was encrypted. Um, Perform, you know, another another proactive step is perform regular assessments and penetration tests. Have somebody come in and, and test your network security. Uh, that'll help you gain visibility in, into your risk profile. Um, uh, another one is uh, engage with a managed service provider, a managed security service provider. Let somebody else monitor your logs 24/7 because uh, you know everybody on this call probably knows that. Uh, IT departments are grossly understaffed, and uh, and monitoring server, firewall, router, switch, uh, whatever XYZ device logs is completely impractical with the amount of time and resources that we have. Let somebody else do that that has the tools to recognize uh, recognize a, a, an attack and respond to it. There's lots of companies out there that have that service. And you, you know, so. There were two headline grabbers recently, and we've seen those. And you know, one was the Russian hacking ring that stole more than a billion online credentials, and then the other one was Community Health Sense Systems, which operates 206 hospitals across the United States. Now, hackers broke into its computers and stole data on 4.5 million patients. And so there are many stories like this, and they're just, just going to keep happening. And you've you've talked about steps to mitigate and and the impact of an attack, and and some other steps proactive you know, before anything happens. But, you know, if our credit card information is encrypted, how are the hackers even getting at it? Well, let's, uh, so I'll go back to the back off malware and, the, uh, and um, there was a, I can't remember the name, but there was a predecessor to that. And what these, what these malwares are doing, um, the point-of-sale system has two primary components. It's got the, the actual scanner, that you, the swiper that you run your card through. And it's got the, the register that's running a Windows-based operating system 99% uh, of the time. And what happens is when you swipe your card, that credit card information is encrypted at the terminal. It's transmitted from there in encrypted format to the uh, actual workstation or the, uh, the cash register system, if you will. Um, when it enters the cash register system, it's uh, briefly decrypted and re-encrypted the transmission to the third-party uh, payment processor. The hackers have figured out they've actually attacked the um, uh, point-of-sale software itself, and uh, the hackers have figured out how to scrape the memory uh, and capture that credit card information as it is unencrypted and re-encrypted and transmitted to the third-party processor. That information is collected usually on an on a inside uh, command and control server, uh, collected and transmitted by secure means uh, off-site to the hacker's uh, lair, for lack of a better term. And uh, it's sold on underground markets within minutes. And uh, you know that's how 
that's how they're getting our quote unquote encrypted credit card information. You know, there's so many conversations out there about um, when you, t- you know, here we, defense. You know, let's talk about the defense department. And like, I'll get into a little bit more of that later. But it, now it's like a, it's national security. I mean, this is usually it used to be you drop a bomb somewhere. Now this is a way for hackers to get in, get information, to compromise economic systems and other and, and utilities and other types of things. And, and for instance, I mean, hard bleed. What happened? Let's talk about that. Oh boy, that was a big one. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Heartbleed <laughs> is a was a vulnerability in uh, the popular open SSL software, um, and, and there was there's two problem two primary problems. Uh, one of them is in large part solved. The other one, uh, a lot of organizations failed to re- recognize. But basically, the Heartbleed bug allows anyone on the internet to read memory from systems that were protected by vulnerable vulnerable versions of the OpenSSL software. Um, mm-hmm. The vulnerability compromises the keys that are used to identify the service providers and, and encrypt the traffic, um, including usernames, passwords, and content. Um, so uh, many organizations have go, gone ahead and patched the OpenSSL software, but what a lot of organizations have failed to do is have those uh, secret keys uh, recreated. Uh, if, if you don't do that immediately after patching the software, uh, your keys are still compromised. And so the hackers can still use your keys that were previously compromised to gain access to your OpenSSL software or your encrypted site and, and collect data. Wow. So what's next? What are we going to be looking at next? I mean, obviously you talked about Dairy Queen today, but I mean, at some point, you know, and then of course we've we've had FBI hacks. We've had, you know, and, and there's been some conversation. Somebody just sent a comment, you know, that they are curious about whether or not some of the airline issues that we've seen with Malaysia Airlines uh, could possibly be attributed to. Um, some type of uh, breach. That's an interesting question. What do you think about that? I mean, I never even thought about it. I just thought that they were uh, not really taking care of their planes very well or didn't have well-trained pilots, but I never thought of it in terms of an Internet breach or any kind of security tech breach. Yeah, I don't know. I, uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't rule anything out. I mean, I, you know, you see, uh, I've done some work in uh, the uh, NERC SIP space, which is basically the power grid uh, um, critical infrastructure, and uh, you know there's there's been uh, breaches with in regards to power grid, and they take some they take a pretty serious stance to protecting that stuff. Um, as far as uh, the Air Malaysia incident, uh, I, I it's my understanding that plane was shot down by uh, by rebels, but um, with our with our networks expanding and, uh, you know, they're offering Wi-Fi on planes now, um, and who knows what else wireless uh, communication. I mean, you look at our cars with Bluetooth now, and, and there's cars driving around with Wi-Fi hotspots. Uh, somebody told me a story last week that they're, they were driving down the road with their kid, and the kid was connecting. They were in a traffic jam, basically, and uh, he turned on his Bluetooth and found several cars around him that, just have the default Bluetooth uh, 
pin code and 0000 on the radio. So he was able to connect to those devices and start playing his iTunes on their radios. And he could see he could see the people in the cars looking all confused. And, I mean, you know, as people wow. implement these uh, technology these technologies of convenience without taking into consideration the security security ramifications of them. You know, very true. I mean, it's the same so, thing with some of the wireless um, access points around. You can go and, and pull something up in your own home office or whatever and see all of the people out there that are using either no password or the standard password or something that that makes them their information accessible to you. And, and last month, I think, it, yeah, it was last month, I was at the White House and I was there for some tech talent in, at Gap and cybersecurity policy meetings with some senior officials there. Um, and Michael Daniel was one of them, and he's the special assistant to the president and cybersecurity coordinator at the White House. So we talked about the Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act of 2014, which was introduced by the Senate Intelligence Committee at the end of June, and you know, nobody likes it, and it's, it's you know similar bills of failed to pass over the last four years. They just can't get it right. And I, I understand that they're trying to facilitate information sharing between companies and the government, but they always seem to come up with some type of broad immunity clause for the companies and then really vague definitions and then aggressive spying powers. So, I mean, what are some of your brief thoughts about the bill or what you think should occur? Yeah, you know, I, I think information sharing is critical, but, uh, you know, this, uh, this new bill, the CISA bill, doesn't uh, I I don't think it's going to pass. I mean, it's got the same thing as its predecessor, the CISPA bill. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a lot of the same tenets, giving government uh, basically the ability to spy on anyone they want, you know, governments and private companies. And uh, you know, I I just think it's going to uh, suffer the same. This new one's going to suffer the same fate as the one from last year, which is death by Congress. I mean, there's no way this is going to pass it, and it just infringes on our rights to privacy too much. And, you know, I agree. And then some of the other conversation that we had was about, you know, when it is something, when it is a threat to national security. And, you know, you have some countries that see uh, the Internet and technology as a plus, and you see others that see it as an impediment or, you know, a violation of their, you know, the way they're set up. So you're never going to have an entity where everybody can come together like a UN where we can have the same type of discussion because we're coming at it from different uh, perspectives. So we've got about a minute left here, and I want to give you an opportunity to share your URL your Facebook, your Twitter, or whatever way it is uh, easiest for us to get in touch with or follow what you're doing. Right. Probably the easiest way to get in touch with me is uh, is through email. Uh, you can reach me at info, I-N-F-O, at auditwest.com. Uh, my website is www.auditwest.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter, although not very much, uh, at auditwest is my uh, Twitter handle. Um, and I also have a Facebook uh, page if you just search for auditwest on there. Um, those are the best ways to get a hold of me. Okay, and you guys have a blog that you keep updated and some other stuff. So, yeah, I would absolutely right, go and right. follow Audit West and follow Brian. And if you have any questions um, as a result of this show, then certainly, you know, shoot us a line and we'll put you back in touch with him. And uh, we'll just go from there. I think we covered pretty much everything I wanted to. And there are a couple of questions out here, but there are, I see they're pretty much repeating some of the things that we've already said. So... Um, we're going to go ahead and uh, wrap up. And Great. Well, like... hey, thanks for having oh. me, Donya. Well, we really appreciated having you. And um, I have a request before we sign off that somebody wants to know if you can come back. So we will have you back on the show. <laughs> I want to thank you, uh, Brian. Thanks, everyone out there who tuned in this afternoon. 
You can find this broadcast as a podcast at the site you're using right now or on Facebook at backslash STR8 Talk Radio. Be sure to like us there, follow us here, and uh, we'll see you next week. We're going to be discussing political candidates running for office in our region and some thoughts on that. I'm your host, Donya Keating, signing off at 3.30 p.m. Pacific Time on Thursday, August 28th.